Good morning, Christ City. Welcome back to our series, Exploring Christology and Who Jesus Is. We're spending 12 weeks in total studying Jesus, and there is no study that is more worthwhile or honestly more beautiful and gloriously good than the study of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, for all those who have come to know him, the the person, the one who captivates their minds and their hearts. He's the person who, by studying him, begins to change us and change the way that we live in the world in which he has placed us because of his glory and his goodness as we come to know him. He becomes our greatest joy and our greatest satisfaction and our first love. But this study of Jesus isn't necessarily an easy thing. It's not always an easy thing. I want to start this morning by giving you a little bit of history about who Jesus is and in the study of Jesus, just in the introduction. It'll be a little bit longer than usual in order to catch you up to speed a little bit on what studying Jesus has been like in history past. I want you to consider, for example, just the great controversy between Arius and Athanasius about Jesus in the fourth century. Now, these are two ancient men that both studied Jesus. They both loved their Bibles. They both loved God, and they wrestled to understand who Jesus really was. Arius read a passage of scripture like Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Arius concluded, well, if God is one, then Jesus cannot be God. However exalted Jesus might be, and that the scriptures might speak of him, clearly he cannot be God, because God is one. And Athanasius, on the other hand, he read the same Bible, and he loved that same scripture, but he loved uh, the rest of the Bible, and he said, no, no, Athanasius, that's, or Arius, that's wrong. Uh, I'm unwilling to mute anything the rest of the Bible says about who Jesus is in order to allow Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 uh, to have the limelight. No, all of what scripture teaches about Jesus must be true. So he's looking at Uh, For example, at passages that talk about Jesus in his divinity, and Athanasius was unwilling to silence or to mute those texts. One of those texts that stands out to me, uh, this glorious text about uh, a declaration of Jesus Christ being God, is from John 20, verse 28. This text that happens after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, and Thomas, one of his disciples, is doubting that he really has been resurrected. And after Thomas reaches out and touches the hands and the scars on Jesus' hands and puts his finger in the side and the wound of Jesus' physical body, he steps back and he doesn't just say, Jesus, you are human. He steps back and he says, my Lord and my God as he worships Jesus with eyes that see that he is fully divine. Or another text that may have stood out to Athanasius would have been Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 to 18. And there Jesus declares about himself things that are only true of God in the Bible. As Jesus Christ steps forward and he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And these are just two of countless texts again and again throughout Scripture teach that Jesus isn't just man, he's also God. You see, Athanasius and Arius, they read the same Bible. But Arius, because he saw that this one thing was true, that God is one in Deuteronomy 6, 4, He was eager to defend that truth in a way that flattened out those other texts that spoke about Jesus as God as well. 
And on the other hand, Athanasius looked at Arius and he said, no, all of these passages together are true. All of them are true. We can't mute or silence or flatten any of them and do justice to the fullness of who God is and what he reveals about himself in Scripture. But it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. You have to have a little sympathy for Arius. How could all these passages be true? How could Jesus be God and also man? How could God be one, but forever also exist in three persons as Father and Son and Spirit? See, when it comes to studying who Jesus is in the Bible, we have a problem. When it comes to studying him in the Bible, we have a problem. Our problem is this. When we study who Jesus is in the Bible, we are trying to measure the depths of infinity. And you and I, as human beings, have a problem. We're not infinite beings. We're finite beings trying to comprehend the infinity of God himself. And time and again, as we study who God is in the Bible, we, we can feel around the edges of what scripture is saying about the truth of who God is, but we don't understand perfectly. We don't understand completely. We bump up against the limitations of our human understanding. We come up against mystery. Not that it doesn't make sense or that it cannot make sense, but that our human minds are not always sufficient to grasp the fullness of who God is to fully comprehend him. And yet, that being said, as we wrestle with scripture, as we're led by the Holy Spirit and led in conversation with one another in the church of other people who are led by the Spirit, we do come to grow and to have greater understanding about what the Bible teaches about who God is, about all that it teaches about who Jesus is. This is true in this controversy, because ultimately the controversy between Athanasius and Arius was resolved. And the church came to agree on the teaching of Scripture. And the summary of that agreement is preserved for us in the Nicene Creed. We read it last week in our liturgy. And the Nicene uh, Creed upholds that the Bible teaches both that Jesus is fully man and that he is fully God. It says that, says, we believe in Jesus, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light. True God from true God, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Today, we are going to continue studying Jesus as part of this long line of people throughout the history of the church who have been studying him before us. And specifically this morning, we're going to now come to part of this Nicene Creed that looks close at who Jesus is as God, particularly one aspect of who he is as God. And that line in the Nicene Creed which says that Jesus Christ is begotten from the Father before all ages. So we're going to jump in and we're going to look at Jesus' eternal pre-existence. And our outline this morning is this. Number one, we're going to look at Jesus, the eternal word of God. Number two, we're going to look at Jesus' love by the Father. And then number three, we're going to look at eternal life. So first point, who is Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the eternal word of God. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. It says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. You see, John is someone who's writing this passage in his first chapter uh, in his book, and he was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. 
And he wrote one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John wrote John. And in his introduction to his gospel, he has this incredible, rich introduction and and statements that are glorious about who Jesus is and how he came to earth uh, for us and for our salvation. And these descriptions are full of images and poetry and beauty and these incredible uh, evocations of earlier parts of Scripture and echoes of earlier parts of Scripture that now are brought forward and seem to be fulfilled in Jesus. And for the original Hebrew who read the first words of John's Gospel, they would have immediately thought of the very first lines of all of the Bible. John wrote his very first words, In the beginning was the Word. And of course, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But how did God create? We can ask that question. Well, the rest of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 speaks of the way that God created through his words, through speaking. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be this and that and trees and animals and humanity and the created world. But John says that the word proceeding from the mouth of God all the way back at the beginning of the created order wasn't just vibrating airwaves coming from the mouth of God, but a person. Jesus Christ, the word of God. And that's not all that John says about Jesus. He continues, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 2 teaches that Jesus is fully God, that he existed even before God made all things. Before the beginning, there was Jesus as God with God. And the Nicene Creed actually affirms this teaching about Jesus' eternal existence with God in that line that that I just read to you in the introduction, but I will read to you again. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. And notice the language that it uses. It's a little bit different than John chapter 1, isn't it? Begotten. And to beget, of course, in English means to uh, father a son. And to be begotten means that you have a father. What the Nicene Creed is communicating is that Jesus is son. He's son. But unlike merely human sons like you and I, he has always been son. He's existed in relationship with the father as son far before he ever entered this world and became human. To state the obvious... (laughs) Eternity, and what we're talking about here, isn't something that we easily comprehend. We can grasp the edges about what the Bible teaches to us about Jesus, but there's so much more that's beyond our understanding. Eternity is hard for us to comprehend. And yet there's a great quote for us here that I want to read that, that just touches on the eternity of God and of Jesus Christ, and it's from a Vancouver local, from a pastor and theologian Mark Jones, and he writes about it this way. He says, for God, there is no past or future, but only a simple present in which he sees all things, past, present, and future at once. He is what he always was. He will be what he will always be. He inhabits billions of years in one moment. And each moment is to him billions 
of years in a manner of speaking. Jesus possesses this attribute of eternity. He is the ancient of days. And obviously this is pretty heady stuff for us. I'm not going to pretend that we fully grasp all that Jesus is in his eternity. But we need to realize that the Bible teaches it. It teaches that it is true that Jesus has pre-existed as son before all ages. And now as we turn to our next point, that Jesus is loved by the Father, we should ask the question, yes, but what did that eternity and that pre-existence look like for Jesus? What was it like for him? Who was he in that eternal pre-existence? What was that like uh, in relationship with the Father and the Spirit before all time began? Well, when we try to understand Jesus before he became human and revealed himself to us, we bump up against that word mystery almost right away. And we're trying to understand as creatures that live fixated or, or fixed in a created world and who are ourselves created, we're trying to understand something about who God is beyond the created world. It's very difficult for us to grasp, and actually the Bible says very little about it. But not nothing. It does say something. The Bible says a little bit about it. So let's take a peek and see what he says, what the Bible says. There's a couple of verses I want to point out to you. First, let's look at John chapter 1, verse 18. It says this about Jesus and his pre-existence as God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now what I want you to show you, what I want to show you here, is that Jesus Christ, who is the Word, who is God, we've already read that in John chapter 1, has existed with God before all ages began. And this verse says that he is at the Father's side. That's a very unremarkable thing to say, I think, for us in English language. It's just the idea that you're next to something else. It doesn't stand out to us at all. But actually, in the Greek language, it communicates something far more intimate and beautiful than we see in English. In Greek, this is far more than just at someone's side. Older translations try to capture what was written here by writing that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. Or in other words... Jesus has the most intimate of relationships with the Father. Because to be in one's bosom is to be intimate with that person in your very heart of hearts, in your very soul. We see that reflected today in some of the older language that you may have read about a bosom friend or about a bosom buddy, which occasionally you hear still today, communicating this intimacy of friendship and relationship to be intimate with the very heart and soul of a person. And there's actually a human example of this in John chapter 13, verse 23, because there John, the disciple of Jesus, is described as having supper with Jesus and reclining at table, having dinner with Jesus at his side or in the bosom of Jesus. And again, it's a fairly tame translation in English, but it's much more and beautiful in Greek. And actually, Christian art has captured this by, by depicting John affectionately resting on Jesus' chest next to Jesus' very heart. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> this sort of intimacy is very unusual and strange in our Western culture. However, it was normal and familiar for ancient and Eastern culture, and even still exists in much Eastern culture today, where men in friendship are far more affectionate with one another than they are in Western culture. All this to say that John 1 verse 18 gives us a little peek into the heart of God in eternity past. And what it communicates is that Jesus exists as God the Son in this most beautiful and intimate of relationships 
with God the Father. Jesus is close to the Father's heart. Jesus is the son the Father delights in. Jesus is the apple of the Father's eye. So I want you to keep that in mind and then look at another verse with me. We're going to look here now at John chapter 17, verse 24. And in this verse, and in this whole chapter, it's a chapter of Jesus praying to his Father. And you and I, as human beings, are invited in as witnesses to hear what Jesus himself would pray and would cry out and speak to his Father. And in verse 24, he prays this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This prayer is so incredible and beautiful as Jesus prays for you and I, that we would be with him, that we would know the love of the Father for him to see the glory that the Father has given him and to take part in that same fellowship with him and with the Father and even with the Spirit. But notice what he says in particular. Jesus says that all of this is because at the end there, at the ver- end of the verse, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. There's a little clue to what life was like before eternity began, as Jesus existed and pre-existed with the Father. What was it like? It was love. It was forever existing in the perfect love of the Father for him. We see a little picture of this at Jesus Christ's baptism. Because at Jesus' baptism, we hear God himself delighting in and loving his son with this perfect uh, eternity past love that he has always had for Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 say it this way. The father speaks. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, Christ City, I realize that you and I can hardly comprehend this love. And I realize that one of the reasons for that is that you and I have never experienced anything like it. No matter how good or how poor of a father you have had in your life, none of us have experienced a perfect love like this. We've never experienced in our lives this father's love for Jesus that is without sin. That's without sin shame. It's without abuse or sorrow or disappointment. It's without without a misunderstanding where the son just never feels understood by their father. It's without communication breakdown. You can't make yourself understood to your father. It's without limitation. It's without change. It's without hot and cold, just consistent and perfect love of the Father delighting in the Son. Delight, relationship, and joy. And I want you to stop then and think for a moment about the greatest experiences of relationship and joy that you have had in your earthly human lives. Maybe you've had a moment with a friend And that friend, as you're talking, 
as you were relating, you just felt an openness and a freedom of expression. You felt accepted. You felt that you belonged for that one moment with this friend, that you were understood, and that you communicated even in the way that you wanted to communicate. Or maybe you remember a smile or a word spoken from a mother or a father or from a sister or a brother. And it was just this, this perfect moment, something pure and good and beautiful in relationship. Or maybe you even think of connectedness and the closest you've been to another human being and you think of sex. But it wasn't just lust. It was deeper than that. Deeper and true, it was unity and oneness. It was vulnerability and acceptance of giving and receiving. But I want you to take Christ's city. I want you to take everything that you know about love and about joy and about intimacy. All that you've experienced imperfectly, think about that. And then extrapolate those things by infinities of orders of magnitude and you will start to comprehend in part the joy and the beauty and the love that Jesus has experienced forever prior to this world began with Father and with Spirit. We come now to our last point, eternal life. I want to ask the question, why does any of this matter? What good does it do for you and for me living right here and now to think of something as abstract and as difficult to comprehend as Jesus' pre-existent eternity with Father and with Spirit? What good is that? Well, it matters because it says something about what you and I are actually created for. You see, the love and existence of Jesus before all was made is a little bit like a road map. You know, in Google Maps and you, you click home, there's that home pinned on the map. For us, this love and this existence of eternity in love with Father and Spirit, for us, it's home on the map. It shows us what we were created for. In C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, there is a beautiful scene where Psyche, who is the princess of Gloom, where she must be sacrificed and die. But prior to her death, she speaks to her stepsister of her longing, of her desire for something more than the world that she experienced in this life. And she talks to her sister. She says this, Do you remember the color and the smell and looking across the gray mountain in the distance? And because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing, Somewhere else, there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I couldn't, not yet, come. And I didn't know where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. Christy, have you ever felt that? I asked you a moment ago to imagine the greatest joys that you've had in relationships on earth. But on the other hand, maybe joy and satisfaction aren't nearly as common and familiar to, your, to you in your life as disappointment and sorrow. Maybe the longer that you live, the less happy you become. And you feel that that joy that you long for is just constantly slipping through your fingers and beyond your reach. But what if all that longing is the truest thing about you? What if it is pointing you to who you were made for? You see, Christ, there is more. 
There is more. And the more is Jesus eternal and his divine life. And he's drawing you towards it. Jesus says this in his prayer to the Father in John 17, verse 3. He says this about us, and about what we were made for. He says, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to be with Father and Spirit, to live in love as Jesus lives in the triune being. See, the good news about Jesus is that because he willingly became human and died for you to be forgiven, you can be reconciled into his perfect love and fellowship with Father and with Son and with Spirit. That's the good news of the gospel. It's to know God. It's to have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Just think back for a moment on John chapter 17, 24, which we read a little while ago. Jesus says there, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. In the bosom of the Father. To know his intimacy and to know his love. I desire, Father, to, for them to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus prays here that we would be brought into his own. To his own glory and satisfaction and joy and love. Joy and glory and happiness that would make all the suffering in this world feel small. So in conclusion, why does Jesus' eternity past matter? It matters because Jesus' eternity past shows us what we were made for. You see, Christ City, when, we, when you long for more joy, when you long for more righteousness, for more justice, and for more love, what you are longing for is to know Jesus. It's what you're longing for. It's just to know him. All of your desires found and satisfied in him. The human heart was created to rest in Jesus. And knowing Jesus makes all the difference in the world in your life today. Why? Because knowing Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. It's to become like Jesus. It's to have known his love, to know his love, and to be radically changed to share his love. To live his love outward and differently in a world that is broken and in shambles. See, more than anything, what this world needs, Christ City, are people who have seen God in the face of Jesus. People who are content and satisfied because they have Jesus. People who willingly give and lose of themselves in order to share the love of Christ with others. To love those around them to the glory of God. Christ City, my prayer is that as we continue in this series, we would see God in Jesus Christ. That we would be changed, that we would be different because of it. That what we're talking about, though difficult to comprehend at points, would so radically change us as we see the love of God and know the love of God in Jesus Christ for us. That we would live differently. That we would be the beginning of a change in Vancouver as we go out, empowered by his love, and by his spirit to live his life in a world of death. Would you pray to that end with me?